Hello and welcome to the WSUM News Hour for the week of January 27th. I'm Will Keneally. And I'm Sam Beisman. Over the next hour, we will bring you a roundup of this week's news and dive deeper into important issues. It is just like our nightly news roundup, with, but with longer interviews and reporting. And this week, we go first to news of the government shutdown, where the federal government has reopened after 35 days shut down. President Donald Trump announced from the Rose Garden Friday that a deal had been reached. Thank you very much, my fellow Americans. I am very proud to announce today that we have reached a deal to end the shutdown and reopen the federal government. As everyone knows, I have a very powerful alternative, but I didn't want to use it at this time. Hopefully, it will be unnecessary. I want to thank all of the incredible federal workers and their amazing families who have shown such extraordinary devotion in the face of this recent hardship. In a short while, I will sign a bill to open our government for three weeks until February 15th. I will make sure that all employees receive their back pay very quickly or as soon as possible. It'll happen fast. I am asking Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to put this proposal on the floor immediately. After 36 days of spirited debate and dialogue, I have seen and heard from enough Democrats and Republicans that they are willing to put partisanship aside, I think, and put the security of the American people first. I do believe they're going to do that. They have said they are for complete border security, and they have finally and fully acknowledged that having barriers, fencing, or walls, or whatever you want to call it, will be an important part of the solution. A bipartisan conference committee of House and Senate lawmakers and leaders will immediately begin reviewing the requests of our homeland security experts and experts they are. The walls we are building are not medieval walls. They are smart walls designed to meet the needs of frontline border agents and are operationally effective. We do not need 2,000 miles of concrete wall from sea to shiny sea. We never did. We never proposed that. We never wanted that, because we have barriers at the border where natural structures are as good as anything that we can build. No border security plan can ever work without a physical barrier. Just doesn't happen. At the same time, we need to increase drug detection technology and manpower to modernize our ports of entry, which are obsolete. The equipment's obsolete. They're old. They're tired. This is something we have all come to agree on. If we don't get a fair deal from Congress, the government will either shut down on February 15th again, or I will use the powers afforded to me under the laws 
and the Constitution of the United States to address this emergency. Congress and the president have three weeks to hammer out a deal before the government is in danger of shutting down again. As we hear at the end of the president's remarks there, Trump has floated the notion of declaring a national emergency to allocate funding for a border wall. Democrats responded Friday, applauding the compromise to reopen the government. Here is Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. As Democrats have said all along, the solution to this impasse was separate funding for the government and then go over our disagreements from border security. Separate the funding of government from the discussion on border security, and that's what we got. And Democrats in the Senate and in the House were united behind this position throughout the shutdown, and ultimately this agreement endorses our position. It reopens the government without preconditions, gives Democrats and Republicans an opportunity to discuss border security without holding hundreds of thousands of American workers hostage. Wisconsin Congressman Mark Pocan was in the district yesterday and spoke to his position on funding for the border wall. Uh, as of yesterday, uh, the shutdown um, ended, the, now the longest in the nation's history, uh, and uh, we have three weeks to try to figure things out. Um, I am not uh, super hopeful, um, but uh, hopefully if we're really trying to do uh, something about the issues that were raised uh, by the president, uh, I think next week you're going to see Democrats put forward uh, some very specific proposals. So if the issue is about uh, drugs, 90% um, of the drugs come through uh, our points of uh, entry into the country, not across the southern border, so then let's put more uh, controls at the points of entry. Uh, if it's about the conditions and why people are leaving Central America, that probably means we need to help uh, facilitate some actions in the countries where people are coming from, specifically um, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. So uh, those are the sort of things that you're going to see coming out of the Democrats. But it was a, it's a tough period because uh, all was for naught. Um, there was no reason, and I still believe there is absolutely no reason, to shut down all of federal government just because we have a disagreement over a border security versus a border wall versus whatever the, the current issue is. Because at one point we were concrete slabs, then we came uh, steel slats, and then at one point it was a metaphor. I'm not sure where we're at exactly with the White House, um, but there's no reason to shut down the IRS. There's no reason to make sure you don't get your tax refund. Um, there's no reason to shut down all the other agencies. Pocan met earlier this week with federal employees who had been working without pay. First of all, I want to thank, and I know we have some of those folks here, I want to thank the federal workers who had to uh, deal with this, especially those who were furloughed and didn't get paychecks. Uh, you know, I just had a chance to meet with some folks from the Forest Products Lab. I uh, met with TSA and air traffic controllers uh, earlier in the week. Um, you know, people were sharing their stories uh, of not getting the checks, um, what that means. I had uh, TSA agents, especially on you know, the median salary is $37,000, um, and not getting that first paycheck and now the second paycheck. You know, I guess I say this somewhat loosely, but fortunately, the first paycheck was after most people had paid their mortgage or rent for January, but this was the check that pays your mortgage or rent for February, and people were feeling that impact. Uh, 
on the uh, other folks I talked to were selling cars to get equity to pay bills, um, canceling cable because it wasn't an essential expense, and just hearing all the different stories that were out there, uh, borrowing money from family members, etc. It's just you know it's it's no way to treat your federal employees whatsoever. So I know this week we have some legislation to try to start addressing that, and I hope that we even go a little further than where we're at on that issue. As the conversation now turns to funding the border wall. Pokhan gave his thoughts on how Congress should proceed. Um, but at the end, uh, what we shut it down for um, is still an issue. Uh, I will hope that we can try to reopen the seven agencies that aren't done um, and keep them funded through September 30th, which is our end of our fiscal year. If we want to continue to have a discussion on border security, we should keep it focused on that and not affect everyone else. Uh, but we'll see how that goes going into the new week. Other members of Wisconsin's congressional delegation weighed in as well. Republican Senator Ron Johnson told Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that it was the leader's fault that the shutdown had progressed so far. In a statement released Friday, the senator said, quote, I don't like shutdowns and I don't like shutdown politics. It wastes money, hurts the economy and harms real people. I hope we can come to a long term solution to secure the border and keep the nation safe while funding the government. On the issue of wall funding, Wisconsin Congressman Glenn Grothman weighed in by taking a trip to the southern border. This is Glenn Grothman. I'm on the American-Mexican border, a little bit west of Sasabi. We're informed that it would be a definite benefit to have this wall longer. You look at the end of the wall and it's just so easy to get through. Even if people have to work their way around the wall, it buys, it buys our Border Patrol precious time in getting a hold of people. Um, on the other side of the wall, people are not helpful, officials over there. So our Border Patrol is under a lot of stress. We could use uh, more people, and not only more people, give them better armaments, that sort of thing, because they have a very dangerous job. As it stands, Congress and the President have three weeks to negotiate a deal on wall funding before the threat of another government shutdown. And with that, we will take a short break, but stay tuned. You are listening to the News Hour here on WSUM. Interested in hearing more live sessions like this? Here I am again. Follow us on SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com WSUM to hear sports broadcasts, live in-studio sessions, podcasts, artist interviews, and more. Only on WSUM. And welcome back. You're tuned into the news hour here on WSUM 91.7 FM Madison. This week, the Supreme Court allowed the Trump administration policy to ban transgendered individuals from military service to go into effect. To better understand how that policy affects that population of American servicemen and women, we spoke to Finn Enke, a professor of LGBTQ studies at UW-Madison. So I was hoping to get some historical context. I know that there was a policy change in the Obama administration. What was policy like before that? Um, so first off, I should say that I'm definitely not an expert in uh, in military policy and the history of that policy. But basically, there hadn't really been a policy. Um, and so there's always been trans people in the military from, you know, like from as long as the military has been around, uh, there have been trans people serving in the military um, with varying degrees of openness. Uh, but um, but there hasn't been 
a prohibition against that exactly, not quite, um, nor has there been a policy of saying, um, yes, you know, anybody can serve regardless of their gender identity um, or whatever their uh, whatever their status might be, or their history of trans transition or anything like that. There wasn't a specific policy. Um, and so what it meant was in practice um, is that, like I said, people were serving in the military, but depending on um, the units that they were in, depending on the cohorts that they were with, depending on kind of the community that they were working with, they experienced varying degrees of comfort being open about being trans. Um, some people transitioned while in the military, um, and you know, other people prior to being prior to serving, and other people transition after they leave the military. Um, it's just been it's really variable, uh, and people's experiences have been really variable. So I know that um, a lot of people served in the military and felt like they couldn't really be open about their trans status. But I also know a lot of other people who found the military to be actually a really good place to be. Um, but in terms of specific policy, again, I'm not an expert on um, the details of how that was adjudicated. For example, if somebody was going to be discharged uh, because somebody else didn't like the fact that they were transgender, how that gets adjudicated is totally outside of my area of expertise. So, uh, yeah. And so from the sense that you have, what was the reaction to that Obama-era policy change? Um, well, it was really short-lived, and I think it was regarded with uh, quite a lot of um, just, uh, you know, it, eases, it eases things up tremendously because, like I said, if trans people are serving in the military, and they are, it's actually a disproportionate number of trans people serve in the military and, and, and measured in two different ways. So one way is that um, among transgender people, um, a pretty significant number of transgender people serve in the military, uh, but also in the uh, demographics of the military itself, trans people constitute a you know not insignificant minority. And so, if trans people are always there, but there's a lot of discomfort and a lot of uncertainty about how openly. Uh, trans people are able to serve in the military. It creates a situation of anxiety literally for everybody, definitely for the trans people, but also for everybody else too because of um, people feeling like maybe they don't themselves want to do anything that might make other people wonder if maybe they are transgender, even for people who aren't transgender. Um, and uh, and it also created a lot of uncertainty among, uh, you know, every kind of every aspect of um, of administration and uh, processes and procedures within the military to not have any kind of clarity about that, um, and 
also creating some clarity and saying, you know, this is absolutely okay. We know that trans people have served in the military and we want to make sure that trans people are able to serve in the military and be comfortable doing so um, and have all of their, you know, whatever their various needs are met the way that anybody else's needs would be met in the military um, was a hugely helpful thing. Uh, it made it easier not simply for trans people to serve in the military, but it made it easier for the military itself because of the clarity that it provided. So you mentioned just a moment ago that there is not an insignificant minority of trans people serving in the military. Does that mean that there's a higher proportion of transgendered military members than in the general populace? Um, that could be the case. Uh, so one thing that we know, um, the military uh, disproportionately serves economically disadvantaged people and people who are marginalized from other kinds of economic opportunities for a variety of reasons, whether it's because of um, racism, whether it's because they live in an area where there aren't other economic opportunities, like in a really maybe depressed part of the country or depressed region, um, or because they're discriminated against in um, in other opportunities for employment. Um, and so the military has been a pretty significant place for trans people to have access to not only that employment, um, but also all the other things that come with it. For example, opportunities to receive an education, right? So just, just like um, many other people who join the military because of the opportunities that it provides to gain skills, um, to gain an education, um, in addition to whatever they might think about, you know, their military service and serving the country specifically by being in the military. Um, and so for that reason, um, I, I mean, that is one of the reasons why a fairly high number of trans people do end up going into the military, because um, it has been perceived um, and really functioned as a place that they can um, gain, uh, you know, skills, education, community, um, all kinds of things that may not be available to them in, uh, in very many other arenas just because the rates of discrimination against trans people are so high in so many different uh, kinds of employment and also in education. Um, it's often very difficult for trans people to have access to education. Um, so the military has been a really important place for trans people. So if there's a policy like this new Trump administration policy on the books, does that dissuade people from joining the military in the first place? Does it make it just harder for those serving currently? So um, it has two two different really direct kinds of effects. Um, well, I mean, three. One is, yes, it does um, It does dissuade some people, for sure, from uh, even considering trying to enter the military. Um, but the two, like, the two probably most significant 
direct effects that it has is that it means that trans people who are already serving in the military and trans people who are still going to serve in the military and they're going to, you know, apply and all of that means that they have to do it under conditions of secrecy and be constantly in fear of their status being discovered, um, which is like just super, super unhealthy, not only for those trans people, but also for their entire military community um, to create that kind of um, overt discrimination. Uh, it creates a degree of suspicion and anxiety literally for everybody in the military. Um, and most directly, of course, for the trans people, it creates conditions of pretty severe, like, just uh, psychological challenge to have to be um, hiding. But trans people still will serve in the military because, like I said, they, they always have. Um, so, but the other, um, the other direct impact that it has is that um, it continues um it continues a message in the climate of the country as a whole um that it's appropriate to discriminate against certain groups of people um and so um it's a it's a very dangerous precedent um and one that you know the impact that trans people feel that impact really directly um and really immediately uh, both in regard to the military, but also just more generally. Um, and then again, um, you know, I think it, it, it increases anxiety and stress for other people as well. Um, you know, when you, when you tell anybody that it's not only okay, but appropriate and good to discriminate against another group of people, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a difficult situation. Um, I, I think it creates a difficult situation for everybody. So those are kind of the most immediate and really quite direct effects. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and then it it also tells people that their service isn't valued, their existence isn't valued. Um, uh, and for many trans people, like I said, they may really feel like they have no alternative but to serve in the military or few alternatives. Um, and for many, it's just been a really important part of their lives and, and is still an important part of their lives. I mean, the number of trans people serving in the military right now is quite high. Um, and it's really important to them. Um, it's something that they value. And for the most part, they are valued within the military. So... Uh, one of the challenges of this, I think, is going to be that so many people in the military do not support the ban against transgender people. Um, that directive isn't coming from the military itself. And that was UW-Madison professor Finn Anke. You're listening to the NewsHour on WSUM 91.7 FM Madison. We'll take a short break, but stay tuned. There's more to come. Tired of all the fake news out there? We've got you covered. WSUM News, every weekday at the top of the hour at 5 and 6 p.m. Put together by our dedicated news team, get the latest local, national, and world news with sports and up-to-date weather. WSUM News. 
transmitting over the airwaves on 91.7 FM and streaming live at WSUM.org. And welcome back. You're tuned in to the News Hour here on WSUM 91.7 FM, Madison. Earlier this week, Governor Tony Evers gave the annual State of the State Address, in which he discussed his administration's plans and emphasized bipartisanship. WSUM carried the address live when it originally aired on Tuesday, but our reporter Sam Beisman has a summary of the speech today. At this time, it is my honor to introduce the governor of the great state of Wisconsin, the Honorable Tony Evers. On Tuesday, Governor Tony Evers delivered his first State of the State address to a crowd of elected officials and government employees gathered in the Wisconsin State Capitol, while thousands of Wisconsinites tuned in from home. Evers' speech paired a suite of policy proposals on a wide range of topics with a call for bipartisanship. To open the address, Evers welcomed his audience but then gave a special recognition to the University of Wisconsin-Madison's own Dr. Mike LeCrone, who has led the UW marching band for 50 years and was present for the speech. The professor will be remembered for being a remarkable leader, teacher, and inspirer, not just for his students, but for people all across our great state. So tonight, we honor the professor and thank him for his service. Ears continued by listing many contemporary challenges Wisconsin is facing, including racial inequality, the rising cost of health care, and the slowing of entrepreneurship, and urged for bipartisanship and compromise in solving these issues. The realities we face are bigger than yours truly or any political party. The magnitude of our challenge require us to put people first because, as I've said it before, that is the promise of our service. So tonight I'm asking you to join me in making good on that promise by moving forward together. From there, Evers spoke on the early initiatives that he has taken to encourage economic growth in the state and highlighted the lives and work of a community activist, a recipient of health care through the Affordable Care Act, an immigrant, and two students. Afterwards, Evers looked forward towards his budgetary plans, promising large investments in education. The investment we make in our kids today will yield dividends for generations. That's why our budget reaffirms our state commitment to our kids by returning to two-thirds funding for the schools across Wisconsin. Evers also stated that his budget will include a $600 million increase in special education funding and a five times increase in mental health programs for K-12 students. Outside of the budget but still within the realm of education, Evers discussed reintroducing legislation that he had previously submitted as the state's superintendent that would expand supplemental education programs for low-income students and students of color in the interest of closing the achievement gap. Next, Evers transitioned onto the topic of health care, noting that his budget would accept the federal Medicaid expansion that Wisconsin has been denying. Evers painted this decision as a nonpartisan issue. Health care should not be a partisan issue. You know, Republican states like Kentucky and Nebraska and Idaho have expanded Medicaid, and so have Democratic states such as Washington, California, and Minnesota. We should be able to get it done here, too. Before transitioning off of health care, 
Evers stated that he has directed Attorney General Josh Call to withdraw from a multi-state lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. However, with the new restrictions on the Attorney General's office passed in December, Evers and Call also need the approval of the Republican-controlled legislature to do so. On infrastructure, Evers called for an across-the-aisle solution to fixing Wisconsin's bridges and roads and declared 2019, quote, the year of clean drinking water in Wisconsin, end quote. To close his speech, Evers returned to the bipartisan motif one last time. You know, in the governor's conference room, inscribed on the ceiling is a phrase that reads, the will of the people is the law of the land. The will of the people is the law of the land. That means I expect legislation arriving on my desk will be passed with broad support and the spirit of bipartisanship. Evers ended the speech with a rallying cry of On Wisconsin, which cued members of the UW marching band to serenade the audience with a familiar tune. Now, let's get back to work. Thank you, and On Wisconsin. And we're joined live in studio with Sam. Sam, thank you for joining us. Ah, No problem, Will. Happy to be here. So bipartisanship was a major theme in the governor's speech. Why do you think he uh, focused on it so prominently? Well, because I think bipartisanship is going to have to be an essential theme of the Evers administration. Well, we're heading into an era of divided government in Wisconsin with both the state assembly and the state senate controlled by the GOP. And on top of that, GOP legislatures have already signaled a bit of opposition to the incoming Evers Democratic government with that package of legislation that they passed early in that special December session that limited and constrained the powers of the governor and the attorney general in the upcoming administration. So if Governor Evers isn't able to find bipartisan solutions and work across the aisle with the GOP, government simply isn't going to function. If no compromises and no deals are reached, Evers won't be able to deliver on any of his campaign promises, and simply nothing's going to get done on a state level. And people like government when it works. And if Wisconsin state government is going to work, it has to be bipartisan. And the last thing we have to remember was that this speech was given in the midst of the longest government shutdown in history. We were look Evers was considering and writing this speech amidst a period of extreme dysfunction in our national government. And I think that context definitely influenced and contributed to the bipartisan theme in the speech as well. Yeah, and especially considering at the state level too, the climate last December where we had um, the Republican-controlled state legislature and then Governor Walker um, pass a series of bills that um, can reduce the power of the incoming Governor Tony Evers and the incoming Democratic Attorney General Josh Call. Um, so it does seem like bipartisanship will be a continuing theme, certainly throughout the coming administration. Something to look forward to as well. We have, um, so there are three kind of main speeches that the governor will give in these early winter months, um, his inauguration speech, the state of the state, which we just heard, and we have a budget speech coming up in late February. So we'll stay tuned to that and see how bipartisanship focuses 
on that. But speaking of limitations to the office of the attorney general, one of the biggest applause lines in the Evers speech was his announcement that he had directed Attorney General Josh Call to pull out of a lawsuit joined by former AG Brad Schimmel against the Affordable Care Act. But it seems that there have been some developments on this issue since the speech. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, actually, that statement has now earned Tony Evers a full flop from PolitiFact because because he actually has turned that around and now is not actually directing his attorney general to do so. Uh, As PolitiFact reports here, that after Tony Evers made that speech in his State of the State address, the nonpartisan Legislative Reference Bureau issued a memo that said that Evers does not have the power to get Wisconsin out of the lawsuit directly because of that GOP-passed law. And if he wants to actually direct his attorney general to do this, he is going to need the consent of the Republican-controlled legislature. This led to Evers issuing a statement on January 25th, uh, reading here, quoting from PolitiFact, they, they quote Evers as saying, there is nothing inconsistent with what I said and what was actually going to happen, end quote, as he said that he, quote, always believed, end quote, that Call would seek permission to withdraw from the lawsuit. So unfortunately for Evers, that, sp- that statement turned out to be pretty false. And he hasn't actually directed his attorney general to pull out of the lawsuit yet directly because of these new constraints placed upon that office. And what also struck me, too, this week was we had a new round of polling come out. Um, the Marquette Law School poll did some internal state-level polling on the issue of health care. A lot of Wisconsinites favor expanding Medicaid, which is something else um, health care-related that Governor Evers touched on in his speech. But the issue of this ACA lawsuit, um, whether Wisconsin should remove itself from the suit or not, That was really divisive along party lines. So it'll be interesting to see. I know um, kind of going forward, he has to receive approval from the very powerful state budget writing committee, the Joint Committee on Finance. So it'll be interesting to see how those members um, kind of work through it and work with the Evers administration. Yes, indeed. And I think if there's one issue that's going to be really, really contentious, even amidst an atmosphere of assumed bipartisanship, it is going to be health care. Because if you remember back during the election, polling data was also showing that for Wisconsin voters, health care was the biggest issue in this election. So if there's one thing that I feel like neither party really feels like they can compromise on and that they have to feel like they have to deliver their package to their voters because it's such an important issue in the state of Wisconsin and in the current political climate, it might just be health care. So it will be really, really interesting to see how this debate and how this issue develops over time. And we also saw this week, too, efforts in the state legislature, in the state assembly especially, to pass a bill that would extend some of the more popular uh, pre-existing condition coverage that is found in the ACA or Obamacare at the state level. So if the Affordable Care Act were overturned or um, found unconstitutional, the state level protections would exist for pre-existing conditions. That bill actually failed last December in the state Senate. So it'll be interesting to see, even within the Republican Party, where those members are. I agree. And maybe we could even read the fact that that bill is making its way through the legislature again as a signal that the GOP isn't going to let Attorney General Call pull out of this lawsuit. Yeah. Um, And especially having it be 
Assembly Bill 1, AB1 is certainly a statement of priority there. For sure. Um, I also wanted to touch on, we heard it a little bit in your package before, um, but on the issue of school funding. Um, so Evers made the promise to return to two-thirds funding for schools. So to have um, state-level funding at two-thirds of what the municipal districts need, taking the burden off of some of these um, municipalities and especially rural schools as well, who I know um, have a hard time raising the funds. Um, I found it incredibly interesting as well on the issue of bipartisanship. Evers included in his speech uh, a little, um, not homage, but a little um, kind of uh, head nod towards the Assembly Speaker Robin Voss when he said, I was pleased to learn that the Speaker has encouraged his members to support the provision in our budget, and I hope I can count on your support going forward. Right. Maybe that's a little bit of heavy-handed bipartisanship. I suppose. I, in this environment, we can strive for bipartisanship, but on some level, both, both parties are going to attempt to use the leverage that they have to get their way. And when it comes to the office of the governor, they're afforded this platform. They're afforded the state of the state, the bully pulpit, etc. So maybe we could read this as a way of Evers using this platform to start to work to trap Speaker Voss and the Republican Party into part of his agenda, maybe even under the guise of bipartisanship, just because this pulpit and the this pulpit and the access to the cameras, access to the address, is just one of those systems of leverage that the governor's office has. Yeah, kind of speaking to that issue, overall, kind of tonally, how did you find the speech? Well, if I had to describe it in three words, I'd say maybe calm but serious. Evers was at times rather rather grave about some of the issues facing Wisconsin, especially in that first third of the speech. He was just going through a laundry list of problems that he diagnosed the state with, but he didn't come off as alarmist or panicked about these issues. Rather, he, and I think purposely tried to craft the tone that he's still in control. There are these issues. Wisconsin is facing legitimate problems, but Evers is prepared to solve them and optimistic about being able to do so. And I think this is a conscious but also essential choice on behalf of Evers and his speechwriters because he ran as such a contrast to the former the former Republican Governor Scott Walker and his administration that he needs to identify problems. He needs to identify lingering issues that still exist that he can work to continue to solve because he ran his campaign as such a contrast to him. If he were to get up there at the state of the state and just say, everything is great, there are no issues, we're doing so well, that's not what he campaigned on and that would be rather disingenuous. Rather, he had to bring up some issues that he was able to identify with the state. And more importantly, he had to also lay out his own plans to solve them and still appear to remain in control of the state government and the state despite those problems. And I think in general, he was able to succeed in doing so. But I will also note a comment that I think continues over from our observations of Ebers on the campaign trail that he's still working up at building that political bravado. He hasn't necessarily had the stereotypical path to a governorship. He, he, I would describe Evers as much more of a merit-based politician than someone who is maybe a 
stereotypical creature of the Washington machine. You can look at someone like, again, the former governor, Scott Walker, who was very, very well composed, an excellent speaker, an excellent networker, and that came off often in his public addresses and also the contrast between him and Evers most blaringly in the debates, whereas Evers in the state of the state occasionally will stumble over his words or will need to go back and correct themselves or whatnot. But definitely has time to improve. And I think what we saw today, especially versus some of his performance in the debate stage, does mark improvement. Yeah. What also struck me, too, is so it's this old cliche that when you're giving the state of the state or the state of the union on the federal level, is that people always say, oh, the state of our union, the state of our state is strong. And Evers made a decided um, departure from that tradition. Um, He said, the state of our state is that we've got work to do, Um, which I thought, especially in the language itself, was kind of striking to outline some of those contrasts between himself and the former administration. But that's that word there, work. We've got work to do. It's not the state of our state is not strong, it's we have work to do, indicating that I am ready, I am composed, and I can guide the state to where I think it needs to go. And I think that was a very conscious effort by the Evers team and rather well executed on the floor. So I also wanted to touch on, we've been talking about what has been in the speech, but were there any noticeable absences? Well, I would say... I would say there were three things that I was kind of keeping my ears open for that I didn't necessarily hear. And the first would be gerrymandering, because Wisconsin has been essentially at the center of the nationwide debate over oppressive redistricting. And to not hear Evers touch on it was a little bit of a surprise. It isn't necessarily a rah-rah issue that can really get his supporters stirred up, and it, it probably isn't necessarily something too attractive to talk about on television, but it is a very important state and moreover national issue that I did feel like kind of went a bit unaddressed. What's Evers' plan for redistricting? The census is coming up in 2020, and it's going to be his administration that's responsible for drawing new district maps. What's going to be his philosophy going into them? There are a couple other things that I was listening for, but I didn't necessarily hear. And The second was a direct addressal of the restrictions of his powers. As you mentioned, there were kind of some subtle jabs at Speaker Voss throughout the speech. And I think that the constant referrals to bipartisanship also played into kind of his addressal of his Republican opposition. But he never directly addressed the fact that the GOP legislatures before he came in restricted his office quite dramatically. And especially just because of the magnitude of the story, I just about every national news network covered this story out of Wisconsin. It was huge national news. So to not hear him make direct mention of it was kind of surprising. But I also think that there's a piece of strategy there. And I think it's probably the smart move because that as well was probably done, I would say, in the interest of bipartisanship. Like to use that again, that bully pulpit to just get in front of the cameras and bash some of the actions of the GOP wouldn't necessarily set the right tone. Rather, getting up there and talking about how we need to work across the aisle to meet the will of the people and emphasizing those values of bipartisanship was the right tone. 
And I think it's also striking, too, as we see some of the lawsuits challenging uh, the bills that were passed uh, last December, it's these outside groups that are doing it. And so it did seem like a very conscious decision to have that conciliatory tone while let other outside advocacy groups do that kind of bully pulpiting. Um, yeah. And maybe any interferal by the governor himself could actually interfere with the legal proceedings going on in those spheres. And then the last thing that I was somewhat listening for, almost uh, one that I was curious to see if Evers would bring up or not, was a mention of Jamie Kloss, the young, the young girl from Barron, Wisconsin, who went missing but then was miraculously found after an escape. Mostly, I was just listening for this because of, again, how large the story was. This was national news. Lester Holt covered it on the NBC Nightly News. And it was it was a huge story. But there was no mention of her in the state of the state address. But I think that's almost maybe the logical choice. I don't know if this necessarily would have been an appropriate venue for such a thing, although Evers could have also used it as an opportunity to boost up and tout Wisconsin law enforcement and police. But at the same time, maybe Evers was just thinking that she needs some well-deserved peace and quiet and maybe just not need additional attention for now. Yeah, kind of keeping it out of the political sphere, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, Sam Beisman, thank you so much. No problem, Will. I'm just happy to be here. And that will do it for this week's WSUM News Hour. You can join us next Sunday at 3 p.m. for more. If you miss us during the week, you can listen to our nightly newscasts on WSUM at 5 and 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday. I'm Will Keneally. And I'm Sam Peisman. Thanks for listening.